What you'll find is that we're a pretty simple church. We do pretty simple things. We come together and we study the Bible. We read the Word. We teach the Bible. We sing biblical songs. We pray. We enjoy some fellowship together. And we do really what the church has been doing for many, many, many years, 2,000 years since Christ ascended. And I think sometimes we come on a Sunday morning and maybe our tendency is to think, well, what did I get today? Did I grow today? And there's a sense in which that's somewhat measurable and tangible. I've told you the story before of when I was a little kid, I had a, I had a tendency to take things apart. Some of you guys probably had that tendency as well. And the joke in my house is when my brother and I, my brother's, my older brother is 16 months older than me. And so we, a lot of times we would end up getting the same toy, you know, if when parents, you just kind of avoid the conflict just by two, much easier. And so the joke in our house was I always got the bad one um, because mine would inevitably be broken after a week or two and my brother still worked. And so I said, I got the bad one again. Well, it was usually because I had taken it apart to try to figure out how it worked and put it back together and then it didn't work anymore. And so one time our Sunday school teacher had sent us home with these little, uh, these little sunflower seed that was in a cup, just this little cup and you're supposed to, you know, water it and put it on the window seal to get some sun. And mine just didn't work. Um, mine didn't work. I'm like, well, I guess, I guess I got the bad seed too. Well, one day my mom comes in and she found me and I'd been digging up the seed every day to check to see if it was growing. <laughs> and I'm like, this thing doesn't work. And I put it back in there, cover it up with dirt and water it and put it back. And every day, and she's like, it's never going to grow if you do that to it. But I think some of us, maybe we come to church sometimes and we read the Bible and it's almost like, we went to the gym and worked out one day and we step on the scale the next day. You're like, this, this thing doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work. So I would just encourage you, if you're here maybe for the hundredth time or you're here for the first time, trust the process, to borrow a term from the sports world. Trust the process. The Lord will grow you over time. Engage in his word, read his word, pray, sing the songs, be around other believers, and just watch what the Lord does. Check it in five years. Check where you are in five years. It's a slow long process that the Lord is walking us all through. So with that in mind, we're going to go to Psalm 82 this morning. And this psalm is a little bit of a mysterious one. It has a couple of interpretive issues around it that I'm going to walk us through that are really a little bit dicey. Sometimes we have those in the scriptures, but I think the overall main point will be clear enough as we walk through this. You know, one of the great lies that I think many people believe is that one day we can be completely independent and autonomous. We can have complete self-rule, which is really what autonomy means. Autos, which is the word means me or self. Nomos comes from the Greek word nomos, which is law. So autonomy, literally, as far as the breaking down the word, it means self-rule or self-law. And I think that's what some people think they will eventually get. I think as you get older, you begin to realize there is actually no such thing as complete self-law or self-rule. I could bring up some of our military friends in our congregation this morning to speak to that. Has anybody ever hit a point in their military career where they say, I have no one that I report to any longer? As soon as you say that, it's not going to go well for the rest of your day, at least, if not longer. I think many kids dream of this, like one day when I'm a parent, one day when I grow up, I'm going to have complete autonomy, self-rule, self-law. But complete autonomy is actually a myth. Even the most powerful people in the world are not completely autonomous. And even 
these kings and, as we're going to see today, these rulers who had extremely powerful positions, they are not completely autonomous. They answer to humans, but then ultimately, everybody, in the end, answers to God. And that's the main point of this psalm. I'm going to take us on a little bit of a theological journey to get there, so buckle up, but that's the main point. So if I lose you somewhere on the process, just raise your hand or something, and we'll come back around to it. The reason I say that is this psalm starts out with an unusual scene. I want you to read it with me. Verse 1, God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither law, neither knowledge, nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. So what is going on here? It says that God has taken his place in the divine council. Now, just a cursory reading of that, you might get the impression God is one of many gods. He just happens to be the God of the gods. A teaching called henotheism. That's your theological word for the day. If you're watching Jeopardy and that comes up, now you know. Henotheism. It's different from what we would say monotheism. There is only one God. Henotheism, on the other hand, says there's a supreme God, but there are other gods. Is that what we're teaching here and what we see? I don't think so. And I'm going to show you why I think there's something else going on here. Let me give you our outline for this morning. And then we'll come back, we'll circle back to that question. It's very simple. If you look at the psalm, it breaks down pretty easily. We have the narrator speaks in verse 1. And we have a declaration that God will judge from this divine council. He will judge. And then we have these judges who are going to be judged in verses 2 through 7. And the reason for their judgment is spelled out in those verses, as you saw. And then lastly, we have a statement again of confirmation that God will do it. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. So it's this plea for God to do it, for him to redeem. Now, the first thing I want to note as we begin to unlock what is this idea of this council that God is sitting in? What does this mean? What are we saying I think we first of all need to understand that people in this culture and world thought very differently than us, all right? And that's sort of an understatement. If you've ever traveled outside of the United States, you may have noticed that people in other countries, other lands, are generally more spiritually minded than us. Have you noticed that? I don't know if anybody's ever traveled. I was talking, um, as I told you, I was in Africa. Uh, Kate and I were in Africa for um, a week and a half or so. And I was talking to Pastor Paul, pastor there at the village in Chiluli. And I said, what are some of the challenges that you're dealing with? And he said, well, so many of the people here believe in witchcraft. And so something will happen, like they get sick and they'll pray. And God doesn't immediately answer that prayer. And they'll say, well, I guess I'll just go to the witch doctor. 
because many of them don't have resources. They don't have any means to get any sort of medical attention. So it must be a spiritual thing. Everything is connected to some spiritual reality. And I think in the world of the Bible, especially the Old Testament and the New Testament as well, you see a lot of this as well, that there's this kind of spirituality and this idea of gods everywhere in society. For those of you who have had an opportunity to travel to somewhere like Greece, we're putting together a trip for next year. You see it everywhere, these temples, these massive temples. So the idea that there are many gods was just baked into the minds of so many people. And so the Bible sometimes uses this type of language to describe the true God, the only true God, the monotheistic God. Deuteronomy 7, uh, 10, 17 says this, For the Lord, your God, is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. Now, let me, in case uh, you're looking at that, some of you may be thinking, well, why is one Lord, see, L-O-R-D, one is capitalized, one is not. You'll notice that. Uh, what the translators have done there for us is when it's Lord, L-O-R-D, in all caps, it's the personal name of God, which was Yahweh. And they were not supposed to speak the personal name of God, the Jews even to this day, because they didn't want to violate the commandment to take the Lord's name in vain. So they said, hey, we know if you don't ever speak it, you can't take it in vain, right? So it became what's known as the tetragrammaton. That's your second theological word for the day. You can really win jeopardy with that one. The name that you didn't speak. It was the original. Most Hebrew, letter, Hebrew words are built around three consonants. The name Yahweh is actually built around four. It was the original four-letter word that you weren't supposed to say. All right? Bonus for you. So you weren't supposed to say it. So our translators put this word Lord in there. Now let's read it with that in mind. For Yahweh, your God, is God of gods. Big G gods, lowercase gods, and Lord of lords, the master of all the other lords. Now, I think what is going on here is the author of Deuteronomy and the author of Psalms, they're not necessarily saying that these gods are real. What they're doing is saying, in your thinking, many people believe that there are these other gods. There's actually not. There, there is only one true and living God. So we see there's a deep connection and understanding of the world in which these people live. I think you see this in places in the New Testament as Paul stands on Mars Hill and he speaks about the true and the living God. People were just, in, they were just spiritual by nature. They thought about the gods much more than maybe we do. You remember the story of Jonah. Our youth are studying Jonah right now with Pastor David. In the story of Jonah, when Jonah is on the boat... And the big storm comes, and everybody's wondering what to do. They start throwing cargo off, and they look at Jonah, and they say, Who's your God? Yahweh God. Okay, pray to him. It wasn't, are you a man of faith, or are you religious? It was, no, who's your God? Because there's this underlying assumption that you had a God. Everybody did. So, back to our text. So, God has taken his place in this divine council. 
And the words are similar here, Elohim and El. They're the same root, so that doesn't really sort this out for us. Then notice again down in verse 6, I said, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. So, big question, who are the gods in verses 1 and 6? There are basically three options here. And others have spoken and written a lot on this. They are human judges and or rulers. They are divine beings that are being spoken of here. Or they are humans that represent divine beings. All right? And there's a little bit of nuance there. Um, Humans that are representing their divine deities. And I think number three is the correct option here. I think they are, God is addressing actual human beings, but he's addressing them knowing that they, in the minds of the people, it's connected to some deity. The people thought in these terms and in this way. I'll show you one spot that sort of shows this. Do you remember the Exodus story? So when God brings his people out of, Israel, out of Egypt, and he does incredible things. He goes, he sends Moses and Aaron to tell Pharaoh, let the people go. But Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, says, no, I'm not going to let them go. And they have this back and forth, back and forth. And then God begins to do incredible signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. And just before this last one, which was the death of the firstborn, God says this, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And so when Pharaoh, the king, was defeated, the people understood his God has been defeated. Or, in the case of the Egyptians, the gods that they serve have been defeated. And so they really saw the battle of the kingdoms was a battle of the gods. And so I think that's the context in which we're speaking and understanding this. Let's look at this, because Jesus actually quotes these, uh, he quotes a verse from here, um, which is really interesting, the way, what he does with this. So if you've got a Bible with you, I want you to go to John uh, chapter 10 for a moment. Hold your finger in Psalm 82. We'll be back, but I want you to go to John chapter 10. So if you take a right in your Bible, you will eventually hit John, if you just keep turning pages. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. John chapter 10. John chapter 10. It's page 1003 in my Bible, but that's going to help probably none of you. John, what is going on here in John? A few things. What Jesus does is actually pretty profound. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man. And this healing's a little bit different. There's been some tension building between Jesus, what he's doing, how he's working, and the Pharisees. Jesus has locked up with them a number of times. And in this particular case, Jesus has healed a man, but he does it on the Sabbath. Now, the problem was there was no explicit law about healing on the Sabbath. And so... It went to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were thinking through these things and said, is it a work to be, to to heal on the Sabbath? That was the big debate. And so this man is healed. And rather than rejoicing that this man's healed, this is amazing. A man that was born blind, now he can see. 
rather than rejoicing at that, they're like, ah, technicality here. I think we got a problem. You know, some people just love technicalities and they go into you know, professions that you just love the details and love kind of calling people out. You know, you missed a comma there. Or, you know, or in some of you have been in the restaurant world and business, you know, health inspectors, they're just kind of like, eh, you can't store the Lysol there. Like, you put it, it's more than six inches from the, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think these guys, if you're a health inspector, I'm sorry, I didn't mean any offense um, by that at all. Our building inspector, the, these types of codes and enforcement, and these guys were just kind of eaten up with that, but, just, but it was in a religious way, not in a public safety sort of way. It was in a religious way, like Jesus. Um, so you healed that guy. Yeah, that's really, that's really neat, but it was on the Sabbath. Like, you shouldn't do that, really. It's like, the man was born blind. He's been blind his whole life. He's an adult. Really? That's what you're going to be worried about? And so Jesus locks up with them multiple times and locks up over the Sabbath multiple times. And so that's the context of the dispute. And so I think what's going on in John 9 and then John 10 is he's pulling a Psalm 82 type of thing. You have bad rulers and you have the good ruler, Jesus. And so then he begins to teach in John chapter 10. And he grabs this imagery, which is just rich from the Old Testament. Um, Ezekiel 34 sort of sits underneath this whole story of bad shepherds and good shepherds. And God said, one day I'm going to send the ultimate shepherd to shepherd my people. That's Jesus. And so all this is being played out. Well, it leads to a pretty serious and heated conflict. So much so that they try to kill him at this point. Now, John has told us, there's three times John tells us that they picked up stones to try to kill him. I think I was later into my adult life when I really thought about what that actually meant. I think we just think, you know, throwing pebbles at somebody, like, you know, riding their bike through the parking lot kind of thing. No, we're talking softball size, big stones, throwing them at somebody until they're dead. Right? That's what we mean. It's dramatic. They picked up stones, not little pebbles. They're they're wanting to take him out because, in their mind, he's a blasphemer. And this is the third time this has happened. Let me show you the other two just because they're really interesting. John chapter 5, there was another dispute. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Well, they got the point of that one, right? And we would say, as Christians, we do believe that Jesus was, in fact, God. And we do believe that he made himself equal to God. They understood that. They said, you can't say that. And so they want to kill him. He slips away from him, from them. Happens again in John chapter 8, just to the left of where we just were. There's a dispute going on. And Jesus tells these people that you're of your father, the devil. They had said, we're of our father, Abraham. And there's a paternity dispute here. Like, oh, yeah, who are you from? The virgin birth. Right. We're of our father, Abraham. Who are you from? And then Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. You can't say that, Jesus. You just can't say that. He's claiming to be eternal. A mere human just can't say that. And they got it. So they picked up stones to throw at him. 
But Jesus hid himself and went away out of the temple. I just love, he just gives him the slip whenever he wants. I'm done with this. See ya. And he just leaves, and they can't find him. I'm like, get back over here. We're trying to kill you. And he's gone. He's just gone. And so this has happened twice before. And both of these times, it has to do with his identity and him making himself equal to God. All right, so this happens again in John 10, 30. They're locked up again at the Feast of Dedication. John 10, verse 30. I and the Father are one. Okay, that's, that's it, Jesus. You cannot say that. You cannot say that you're one with God the Father. That's blasphemy. So 1031. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. They got his point. Jesus answered them, and this is where it gets a little bit murky for us. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? So he quotes from our psalm, Psalm 82. He says, hey, back in your law, your Old Testament, which I know much better than you, he says, you, it actually says that they are gods. People are called gods. If that's in your law, then how can you accuse me of blasphemy if I say I and the Father are one? That's his point. So we have this big arc that's going on. And God is ultimately going to judge them. He's putting them in the category of these false leaders. He is the one who's truly from God. So I think it's definitely referring to humans because Jesus takes it that way. These are referring to human leaders and human rulers. Okay, it's a little bit of a mysterious passage. I understand that. Let's go back to Psalm 82, and we'll sort that out a little bit more when we get there. So the first main point that we see is that God is, in fact, going to judge. We have God taking his position of authority. He's in the midst of the gods, and he holds judgment. And now he's going to instruct on why and how he's going to judge. The principle is this. Authority brings responsibility. Authority brings responsibility. We all know this is true, and this is true in every arena of life. If you're a parent, you have authority and you also have responsibility. If you're a manager at work, you have authority and you also have responsibility. No matter what sphere of life, this is just how it works. It's not really a controversial thing to say that. Let's talk about a few different types of leaders and the responsibilities that they have. Two different types, civil leaders, and then I want to talk also about church leaders. I think this is directly addressed to civil leaders, it would seem, but there's also application, I think, for all of us. So civil leaders, the principle is very simple. simple. Authority brings responsibility. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted 
by God. So we understand this, and this is a passage that we've talked about a number of times here at this church as far as the Christian and relationship to government and laws and things like that. And we understand that government has actual authority, but it's a derived authority. Illustration I've used with my students before, and I've used with you as well. Children are told to obey their parents. Are there ever exceptions to this? Well, what if kids, what if mom rolled up the minivan outside the 7-Eleven? She handed you a fake gun and says, go get the money up from the cashier. Well, at that point, they are not, they, they have lost touch with their derived authority. God has given them authority, but they are breaking what God wants them to do. And so now you have a higher authority and you must obey God rather than man. These are only a few circumstances and instances, but it does happen. And we recognize that. So civil leaders, they have actual authority invested by God and they have responsibility to use that well. What's the responsibility? We won't read it all, but if you continue on in Romans 13, you have basically two things in Romans 13 that the civil leaders are responsible to do. One, protect the innocent. Two, to punish evildoers. That's the two. Protect the innocent, punish evildoers. And what you're going to see in this text is this is exactly the opposite of what these civil leaders are doing. They're not protecting the innocent. And they're not punishing evildoers. They're allowing evil to flourish and rule. It's true in government. It's true in organizations. So civil leaders, they have a certain authority and they have a certain responsibility. Church leaders as well have authority and they have responsibility. I have to tell you, it's just good for me as a church leader and it's good for our elders here to hear these verses, to remind ourselves of these verses and it's good accountability for everybody. Church leaders, I'll read these to you. You can jot them down and look them up later. Or if anyone wants to take a picture of the slide, you're welcome to do that. I always try to smile when people take pictures of the slides. I see people every now and then. I kind of, I don't want to distract you, but I will pose if you like that. A few verses about this. James 3.1. These are heavy verses. Just, just listen. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, for anybody who stands up and teaches God's word, this verse should be ringing in the back of your head all the time. There's a responsibility. You think a particular way about God because of teachers and leaders that you've had, because of the people you've read, because of the sermons you've heard, because of the podcast you listen to, whatever it is. Your view of Almighty, eternal God is shaped by people. And that's a huge, weighty responsibility. Matthew 18, 6. Again, Jesus is confronting the Pharisees here. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. That's profound be better to have a millstone, a huge, gigantic grinding stone, meaning something that's going to drag you to the bottom of the water and you're going to die. It'd be better for you than to deceive one of these young ones and cause them to sin. It's a massive responsibility church leaders have. Hebrews 13, 17. 
obey your leaders and submit to them. Now, some leaders love that particular part of the verse. Obey your leaders and submit to them. You got to keep reading, though. For they are keeping watch over your souls. Oh, as those who will have to give an account. Oh, that's what leaders have to do? Because some people love the authority, but they don't want any of the responsibility or the burden of what it means to actually oversee souls. That is weighty, very weighty. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So I'm trying to paint a paradigm here. There's authorities and there's responsibilities invested in these authorities, and they are responsible to use their position and authority well. And to the extent that they don't use that authority well, to the extent that they abuse any sort of power, privilege, position that they have, to the extent that they do that, they will be judged by the Lord in the church, civil leaders, wherever they are. This is both a comfort for us and for those of us who have some level of authority over some other human beings, it is also extremely sobering. Whether you're leading a team at your work, whether you're at your house, uh, leading your kids and family, whatever it is, this is a weighty, weighty issue. So let's go back to Psalm 82. They're indicted, and they're indicted really on four counts here, if you will. Four statements. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. It's verse 3. Second half of verse 3, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So in verses 3 and 4, you have these four statements. Give justice, maintain the right, rescue, and deliver. Four statements. The fatherless are picked up. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. In that culture, and much the same as it is here, but maybe even worse, the fatherless, if you were a true orphan in that culture and world, you were really in a bad spot. Um, women and, and children couldn't just, you couldn't just go to Home Depot or Chick-fil-A and get a job. Um, it didn't work that way. The society and economy was just structured very differently. So if you lost your provider, that was just a massive problem. And you needed somebody to show you kindness and generosity and bring you in to their home. In northern Uganda, where the Rattans used to serve, sorry, I'm, I'm kind of full of Uganda stories right now. You guys just indulge me with that. In northern Uganda, where they used to serve, there was an orphanage that they were connected to. And when we say orphanage, uh, you have a certain probably idea about what that is and what actually happens there. Many times in the developing world, an orphan, orphanage is not a true orphanage in the sense that we think of it. Um, they're not true orphans. And sometimes what happens, oftentimes what happens, there'll be an orphanage, um, a family will have a child that they are not able to care for, uh, just don't have the resources, the money. Maybe it's they've had multiple children, and they're kind of at the end of the line. They're like, we're already out of bread. We can't afford another one. And they'll just take the kid to the orphanage because they know that they'll get fed and cared for. And so what happens is on holidays and special occasions, all the kids go home. It's almost more like a boarding school, um, really, than an orphanage. And so there was, they were connected to this ministry for a time. They're in northern Uganda. And there was one kid, it was holidays, uh, actually two of them, uh, 
during the holidays, they didn't have anywhere to go. And so they were still there at, at the orphanage. And so they took them into their home, um, ended up adopting um, one of their, that's how they adopted uh, their son, Moses. Uh, just, a, just a great story, um, great kid, just had a great time uh, hanging out with him. But it's a, it was a picture to me of how it should work. There's somebody who's just got this need and you're willing to take them in. This is what leaders should be willing to do, ready to do. And not just leaders, of course, but all Christians. You're showing partiality to the wicked. Instead, you should be giving justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. David recently walked us through the book of James. There's a section in there about, there's a warning about snuggling up to the rich people. Because it's them that are dragging you into court. You're trying to get something out of these people who are well off. But in the end, it's going to bite you. It's going to take you out. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, what am I supposed to do with that? I'm not really in a position to adopt a kid or maybe hire legal counsel for somebody that doesn't have a legal representation. Maybe not in a position to do that. I think anybody can take in some of these thoughts and concepts, though, and internalize them and work them out. Maybe students at school, there's a kid that is kind of a loner, just kind of keeps to themselves, doesn't have a lot of friends, doesn't have people to sit with. Maybe you can expand out your circle a little bit, befriend them, say hi. Maybe we can do that even here this morning at the church. Say hi to somebody that just looks like they need a hug or an ear. Some people don't like hugs, but some people do, so... Whatever works for you. There's all kinds of ways that this principle of looking out for those who don't have what you have. This is the character and the nature of leaders. Instead, they've used people to their advantage. They've stepped on people. They've crunched them in the process. And they are just leaving a path, a wake behind them. This is not right. And God's going to hold them accountable for that. The end result is that they become dark in their hearts. Verse 5. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Now, it's kind of dramatic language. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Justice is turned on its head. The world is in upheaval because of unjust, unrighteous rulers. They become unable to understand we talked about this in Romans 1 not long ago. When you say no to the Lord long enough, you actually start to believe yourself. You've probably, at some point in your life, convinced yourself something happened or something was true that wasn't actually true or happened. You just tell yourself this long enough, and suddenly it becomes part of what you believe. And so they have no knowledge. They have no understanding. They walk about in darkness. One of my favorite quotes from Chronicles of Narnia is in Magician's Nephew where Lewis is talking about this character, Uncle Andrew, who's refused to hear the voice of Aslan, the great lion who's singing, and he says, lions don't sing, lions don't sing, lions don't sing. Then it says, suddenly he can't hear the singing anymore. And Lewis says about this, the trouble with making yourself stupider than you really are is you very often succeed. Uncle Andrew did. And when you just say, no, 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 this is for my own benefit, my own good, Eventually, you, d you turn your back on the Lord and you keep doing it over and over and over and over again. You hit a point where you can't do anything else and you're stuck in your darkness and unbelief at that point. And that is a scary, scary idea. 
Don't reject him over and over again. That brings us to these verses that we've already mentioned, so I won't spend much time on it. I said, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. He is the God of gods. He's the king of kings. All of these other systems will fall, even though these people think they have so much authority and so much power, they're going to die just like everybody else in the end. Death is the great equalizer. No politician, no king, no leader, no influencer, no movie star, no athlete is immune to God's judgment in the end. It may not seem that way right now. It might seem like the wicked are prospering. Psalm 73. It might, you might look around and think the wicked, oh, they just get more and more raises. They get the relationships. They get everything I want. Why is that? And is it always going to be that way? Well, it's not. It's not. And Christians have to stop and remember this. And we have to stop and remember this final verse. Rise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. We're not done. This story is so far from over. And we have to remember that as Christians. I want to read a couple of verses from the book of Colossians as we wrap up today and talk for just a moment about what we mean when we talk about redemption and reconciliation in some of these terms. Colossians chapter 1 comes right after a section about Christ, who Christ is, that he's the great, awesome, supreme one. He's God in the flesh. What does that mean for you? It means that he can make you right with him. Imagine that. The God of the universe. He knows you. He cares. And he forgives. Colossians 1 and verse 21 says this, And you... That's you. It's uh, in good Greek. We should translate this, y'all. Hey, y'all, guess what? You were once alienated, distanced, and hostile in mind. You didn't love God. You were doing evil deeds, just like these judges in Psalm 82. He has now reconciled, made it right, made you right, in his body of flesh by his death. That's the body of Christ. He gave his actual body on the cross. He actually defeated death. He actually took the penalty for your sin on the cross. And he reconciled you. Why did he do that? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. When you looked in the mirror this morning, you probably didn't think, man, I am holy and blameless right? <laughs> Most of the time when you wake up in the morning, you look, it's, it's like damage control. Like, where'd that come from? What just happened? Do I really look like that? For me, it's always when I hear myself on a recording, I'm like, do I really sound like that? Why does anybody come and listen? Some people love hearing themselves talk, but I think most of us don't. That's who you are, though, if you're in Christ, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is what Christ has done for us, for those who believe, for those who have repented their sins and trusted in Jesus as their Savior. We are new people. We're not perfect. We're still married to this flesh, but we are new people in Christ. A song that we sang earlier, I Will Arise and Go to Jesus, there's an odd line there. I just want to take a second and explain that. There's one line that says, Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness 
fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. Now, that's kind of old language, and maybe that kind of blew by you, and you sort of sang that without really letting that stick for a second. Let me just explain what's going on here. Let not conscience make you linger, nor fitness fondly dream. What he's saying is that don't let the enemy get in your head and tell you you're not good enough for God. I've talked to so many people over the years that think, you just don't know what I've done. You just don't know who I am. You just don't know the thoughts that I have. Don't let that stick. His grace is enough. He says, nor a fitness fondly dream. Now, fitness, this is not physical fitness. This is a fitness, a a being right, being fit to be a child of God. Maybe to say it another way, if you're trying to clean up your life in order to be a child of God, you will never, ever get there. You'll just, you just won't. Don't let that, nor a fitness finally dream. And then it says, all the fitness he requireth. So what's the precondition? What's the prereq for coming into the kingdom? All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. If you just understand and know I am a sinner and he's a savior, that's what he wants. And you repent of your sins and you trust in him. That's the person God saves. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And even though there's some verses here in Psalm 82 that are a little bit mysterious to us and maybe hard for us to put our finger on exactly what to do with some of those, Lord, we recognize the overall message is so clear and significant for us. Lord, you do require, you have responsibility, there are responsibilities and there is judgment for all of us, Lord, for, to give an account for the tools that you've given us, for our talents as we've been studying in our stewardship study. Lord, I pray for some in here this morning, maybe that are struggling with this. Maybe they don't feel fit or right for the kingdom. Lord, may they understand that all they need to do is understand that they are sinners and you're a great savior and repent and trust in Jesus and commit their lives to follow him now. Lord, we pray that you would use your word. Work in our hearts today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.